This podcast was recorded on the afternoon of Wednesday the 13th of December, yet again being recorded too early for important developments. This time the government's defeat on the amendment of the EU withdrawal bill. Why do they keep doing this to us? Hello, welcome to the last regular Romaniac show of 2017. It's end of term, so we've all been allowed to wear our own clothes instead of school uniform, and we brought board games in. But this is a Brexit podcast, and so we've got Kaplunk, Sorry, and Snakes and Ladders, with no ladders and lots of snakes. I'm Dorian Linsky, and this week we have a very special guest, Nick Clegg, Deputy Prime Minister from 2010 to 2015, leader of the Liberal Democrats from 2007 to 2015, an arch Ramona, according to The Express, and author of How to Stop Brexit and Make Britain Great Again, which has just been voted Parliamentary Book of the Year by MPs. Welcome to Romania. It's Nick. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Are you, are you looking forward to hearing people say, I agree with Nick again? <laughs> yes, book? Finally, finally. <laughs> Preaching to the converted. <laughs> <laughs> now that you've written this book, yeah. what's keeping you busy outside? Parliament? Well, I'm doing a bunch of different things. I've, I've set up a, it's probably a slightly grand term, but it's a think tank called Open Reason. And we continue to do a lot of research on on Brexit and its ramifications. Um, and also spend quite a lot of time at the moment going to different European capitals, talking to people I know in in government and elsewhere, in Paris, in Brussels, in Rome, in Madrid, uh, because they they just don't they just don't they're not getting the full picture at all about the debate in this country or public opinion in this country from either their reading of the <laughs> warped British press or indeed from the government. So I do a lot of that, and then I'm completely separately starting a whole bunch of work on the um, what I view as the increasing kind of collision between. Uh, politics and public opinion and and modern technology and the sort of collision between Silicon Valley and and public and political sentiment, particularly in Europe, which interests me and and how we should have you know how we should kind of get ourselves ready for the unfolding uh, artificial intelligence revolution and how do we get the best out of it and avoid the worst that kind of stuff. So that's a completely different bit, if you like, of my life, but it's it's absorbing a lot of my time at the moment. It's so not just sitting on the sofa watching Netflix then. No, no, <laughs> you've got plenty I am, on. I am deep in series four of Breaking Bad, which I couldn't watch. Watch Breaking Bad because it was on when I was in government, and so I have I am catching up <laughs> furiously. Um, I'm, in, I'm taking great dollop sizes of these Netflix series in, in uh, at a gallop in the freedom. <laughs> um, on the Today program in September, you said of David Davis's negotiations in Brussels is like staring at an empty building site and saying we've made progress because we've made a cup of tea. W- what's it looking like now? I think they've put half a lump of sugar in the tea, uh, <laughs> but there's no more progress than that. I mean, one of the one of the things that it's so exasperating is that, I mean, I, I guess it was always like this, and, and I certainly remember it when I was sort of in the front line of politics. So much of politics now is conducted in this in this sort of hyperbolic, breathless way, you know, at once someone's up, someone's down, someone's great, someone's ghastly, someone's a hero, someone's a villain. There's no in-between. And so we've had this absurd gear change from hapless Theresa May on the ropes, you know, all those kind of awful hackneyed journalistic uh, adjectives and phrases um, apply to her. She then signs up to a 15-page document, which lit, which almost says nothing. Well, on Ireland, it says nothing. I mean, literally nothing. It just parks the Irish problem. On money, it's just, hey, you know, there's a surprise. Pay. Britain's <laughs> coughing up. And on the on, on citizens, that's pretty pretty solid, uh, but pretty predictable. The document contains nothing about the future, doesn't involve any of the invidious choices, doesn't in any way come clean about what the country faces, and it's now hailed as a triumph. And now we're constantly told she walks on water and she's got all sorts of authority which allows her to do X, Y, Z. I I think think that so-called deal flatters to deceive because it gives the impression of progress, it gives the impression of momentum, when in fact all it is is a sort of glorified way of treading water and avoiding the difficult, invidious choices we still need to make. We'll be getting into the details of this uh, this document later. We've also got Peter Collins, our regular business expert, armchair Brexitologist and social media denier. Hi, Peter. How are you? Not too bad, but still, uh, as Nick was saying, baffled as to, you know, what is on this paper that makes everybody in some of the newspapers jump up and down with joy? I can't see it. We'll try and find out. On Twitter last week, we had one listener referring to us as Dorian Linsky, Ian Dunt and the cleverest one who's not on Twitter. Obviously, as you're not on Twitter, this can't have been you, unless you've been setting up sock puppet accounts to call you clever. I don't even know what a sock puppet account is, my <laughs> love. <laughs> no, Innocent. I, I, I'm I proud saw, of it. I saw that and I thought, 
surely he's not referring to me. But if so, it's it's I'm very flattered. I'm a bit embarrassed because if, if it's the right one, the one you're talking mm. about, it's somebody with the same surname as me, Andrew Collins, the journalist and radio presenter, far more talented than I. Uh, he's no relation as far as I know. And I've never met him. Honest, Gov. Thank well, you. We'll let you, the listener, be the judge. <laughs> we have another guest today, the journalist and broadcaster Miranda Sawyer of The Observer and Radio 4. Hello. <laughs> and thank you for naming us one of The Observer's top 10 radio shows and podcasts. Is this why and now I'm here, here you now. are. Is this why I'm here allowed in the room? <laughs> so we're just passing her a brown envelope of euros. You gave us praise there for being firmly partisan. I did, Do you yes. find when you're listening to politics uh, on radio and, and on some podcasts that the relentless balance can get wearing? I think it's really interesting because over the last kind of year or so, the BBC has sounded a bit out of whack because every time they put some kind of loony... Uh, you know, uh, you had climate change denier or absolutely kind of rabid uh, Brexiteer. They feel like, you know, that this is allowed because they've got somebody quite reasonable on the other side. And actually it never works because nothing meets in the middle. And I, as a kind of more centrist kind of reasonable person, I just want to hear the nuances of an argument in the middle, really. And if you go to podcasts where, okay, it's not always kind of, uh, always nuanced it can be kind of hilarious but if you go to a podcast like yours or Pod Save America where you know where the stance is then actually it's a bit it's kind of relaxing it's like going to the pub with people you like you think okay this is fine now I understand what we're talking about you're just going to explain it a bit more in detail to me yeah. that's fine I don't have to listen to the ranting loony in the corner and that like is a relief I have to say well, of course, this week we've got a special guest waiting outside. It's the guy from Weatherspoons. Lovely Before we get to the May deal, uh, some messages from Peter. Just a quick reminder that you can back us in our important work of overturning Brexit so the government can get get on with normal things like, you know, running the country. You can support us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon, pledge anything from a couple of pounds a month upwards, and we'll send you classy Romaniacs t-shirts, bags and mugs, plus early bird offers of tickets to the Romaniacs live shows that we'll eventually be doing in the new year. You can get to our Patreon page via Romaniacs.com. And if you want to help right now, you could go to Apple Podcasts on your phone and give us a star rating and review. It all helps to get the show noticed. This week we were just one place behind Ed Miliband's reasons to be cheerful. Hope he's feeling cheerful now in the iTunes top 10. So you know what to do. And we're not going to let Nick Clegg leave the studio until he gets his phone out and gives us five gold EU stars. (laughs) (laughs) And now for Theresa May's deal. Last week we recorded the podcast on Wednesday talking about the shambles of the negotiating position. Then on Friday, out of what I can only describe as a malicious desire to undermine the integrity of this show, the government announced that it had finally struck an agreement with the EU to end the first phase of negotiations and open up talks on trade. On citizens' rights, the proposal is that EU citizens in the UK will have the right to stay and vice versa. On Ireland, there will be no hard border, but no plan on how to avoid a hard border, so TBC. <laughs> and on money, we'll be paying between £35 billion and £39 billion, although The Guardian reckons it could be up to £50 billion. The Tories were quick to claim victory. Michael Gove triumphantly announced the final whistle blew this morning and Theresa May won. I like it when he's trying to be populist, isn't he? He's trying to be, you know, the football, which seems a bit premature given it's not even half time yet. And Leave.eu and the other Brexit headbangers were pleasingly furious, calling the Prime Minister Theresa the appeaser and wailing about betrayal. But by Sunday, the wheels were coming off. On the Sunday morning politics programmes, David Davis was already saying that the deal was not binding. By Sunday evening, the Conservative social media team was attacking Labour and Keir Starmer for offering billions to the EU every year, following EU law with no say and no control over immigration, even though this was everything that Theresa May had apparently just agreed to. By Monday morning, Gove was saying that the deal could be amended by later general election results, although oddly he doesn't want Brexit itself cancelled by general election results. And by Monday afternoon, Theresa May herself was informing MPs that we will not honour our divorce bill if we don't get a trade deal. So that's that cleared up. (laughs) We could all go home. (laughs) I mean, one of the ways in which we judge whether things are good news for sort of us is how angry leavers are. And obviously, uh, you know, the the, the hardline leavers. Mm. Um, Obviously, people like Farage. Um, He's furious. I mean, is, is is that a good thing? Or would he just be furious about pretty much anything? No, I, if, if, if well, look, I may be wrong, but my suggestion would be look at the, um, think about why the Daily Mail welcomed it. Think about why Michael Gove went on the Today programme and said so volubly as the sort of shop steward of the Brexiteers and the Cabinet, this is a great thing. I, I actually think um, the kind of splenetic reaction of Farage in this instance is entirely irrelevant. I think what is very revealing is that the Brexiteers... And some of them may be mad and many of them may be bad, but 
quite a lot of them are quite smart, have worked out that uh, in many ways events are slipping away from them. Public opinion is becoming is developing ever greater misgivings about about the complexity and, uh, and disruption caused by Brexit. Uh, they see that at every single juncture, the EU 27 win against the UK one. And I think, and I'm pretty sure this is what's happened, I think they've basically decided that their absolute number one priority is in one shape or form to get us over this legal deadline at the end of March 2019. And they're basically now prepared to suffer pretty well any indignity and claim victory about every defeat in order to whether it's kicking or screaming, drag us and drag Parliament across that legal deadline. Because they know once we're beyond that, uh, in a sense, we're at a point of no return, which is why it was very significant that, that, that Michael Gove, in the article he published on Sunday after this deal, started dwelling immediately on how much future governments and future parliaments after future general elections could, if they chose to, unpick uh, European standards uh, if they want to in the future. Because I think they, I think the Brexiteers, correctly in my view from their point of view, have worked out that the long game is get the United Kingdom out under almost any circumstances, however many compromises need to be struck from their sort of traditionally or customarily hardline point of view, and then then we can do with the UK what we want and we can pursue our sort of low state, low tax, low regulation, low welfare vision. And that's why I personally think that Remainers need to kind of wake up and smell the coffee and realise that there is very little chance to get to sort of, there's no, there's very little chance to find a way back in once we've left at the end of March. So I, I really worry about the way that I had quite a lot of people in different parties in Westminster saying, oh, maybe we can have a nice gentle transition period. And then while we're in the transition period, somehow maybe that will become a sort of semi-permanent state of affairs. That's very dangerous, very dangerous. And the transition period is like a, of course, businesses like it because it means that you smooth rough edges. It, it also serves as a bit of an, a sort of anaesthetic because it makes people think, oh, it's all it's not going to happen soon. It's, it's all going to happen on a sort of gentle flight path. It's very dangerous, which is why the Brexiteers, you will see, will increasingly start talking up the need for a transition period, even one which, from their point of view, should be ideologically unacceptable because it's basically a delay of the status quo because they realise it's a great way to lull everybody else to kind of get past the legal deadline. So I, I, I think the next battle is to realise that we've got to bring this to a head. If we want to derail this juggernaut, we've got to bring it to a head before the end of March 2019. And is that why David Davis then kind of said, it's OK, we can undo it? That's essentially, he's operating on that on the way that you're saying, he say, he's saying, OK, we've got this deal, but don't you don't need to worry about it because later on we can kind of finesse it. Uh, no, I, I, well, I think he was more sort of trying to kind of placate the Tory Brett benchers who worry that money will be paid regardless of what the EU gives in return. Yeah. And so he was somehow trying to pretend that the deal was something... I mean, that the money will now have to be paid and we've seen the reaction since. No, I, I don't think it was that so much. Um, uh, but, I, but I do think he, he – he, and I know I've known him, David, for tw 20 years or so, and uh, he, he's no fool, um, uh, notwithstanding his extraordinary ability to invent impact assessments and then, <laughs> and then, and then uninvent them again, which is, well, I suppose is an act of genius of some description. But um, uh, so I don't think he was re referring to that, but he's, I'm absolutely convinced that uh, people like him will now talk up a transition period, and they'll make the so-called Canada plus 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 agreement sound terribly digestible because it's Canada where they yeah. speak English and they love the Queen and Justin, <laughs> you know, Trudeau is dishy and, um, you know, I think you're going to get a lot of sort of soft soap stuff, which I, I which is going to be dangerous because it'll 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 give those who want to oppose Brexit few opportunities to really kind of dig a trench and say, you know, beyond this we won't go. And I think that's the game they're playing. And that, yeah. that, in my view, reflects why you had this Daily Mail headline of Rejoice. Because, uh, again, Paul Dacre, vile character, uh, but not daft. And he realised best thing is keep this puppet that he's now installed in number 10 in place, Theresa May, say it's all going swimmingly. And, and when everyone realises it isn't, it's too late, ha, ha, ha. That's their game. So should we be campaigning for a second referendum? Is that is that so? My view, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book, was was that I, I, I my own view, self evidently, is that in the long run, a, a vote of the British people can only really be countermanded by a vote of the British people. But there is a chronology to this. You won't get there unless you first bring this to a head before the end of March 2019. We're not going to have a referendum before the end of March 2019. What we can have is our MPs on our behalf saying up with this we will not put, and saying no to the deal. Now, that then creates all sorts of turbulence, probably new elections, new governments. Heaven knows, I can't find that difficult to predict. That in itself may then shake out in the end to a referendum. But I, 
again, I, I personally, this is my personal view, I would counsel against talking about the end point a, refer- a referendum when we really need to be focusing people's energies on the short term. There, there's no way out of this cul-de-sac which doesn't start with MPs plucking up their courage and saying no yeah. to the government mm. next year. That's, the, that's my point. Um, so we'll, let's do a couple of the points in this document. The, the Irish border, which I found even very hard to write what I was going to say, yes. because it seemed like it was just somebody like waving their hands in front of your face. And just go, ooh. Uh, you know, it, it's fixed. And I kind of looked at it and I was like, what? It was sort of like, it's fixed unless it's not fixed. It just seemed entirely sort of kicking the can down the road because it seemed like the fundamental contradiction of like, well, if you don't have a hard border and you don't have a border in the Irish Sea and you don't have the whole UK in the customs union, what's option four? Yeah. Well, Still it, no it, idea. Effectively, one way of looking at it is that the British side have conceded a big thing in the final trade negotiation, which is that there'll be no hard border. Therefore, Britain may, on a piece of paper, leave the customs union, leave the single market. But remember, you know, you've got all, it's not just tariffs, it's also quotas, it's also uh, technical standards, it's also all this, you know, agricultural standards, chlorinated chicken and all the rest. Now, the point is, if we can't vary in any significant way, it seems to me, the EU's rules on all this sort of stuff, and it's a huge amount of stuff affecting a huge amount of British trade, then we can't go off to America or Brazil or India and sign these hypothetical, wonderful trade deals, which, of course, I don't believe exist anyway, because I think these are all protectionist countries that don't want our manufactured products. But, you know, even if you assume that the Brexiters are right and these deals are out there, surely you can't do those deals uh, or any any meaningful deal that the EU hasn't already done without varying from the EU's standards. So, therefore, we're now basically saying... We'll either stay in the single market and the customs union or we won't, but we'll kind of do so in the shadows and, and basically follow silently along without any vote. Am I getting this completely wrong, Nick? No, but, but, but I mean, I think, Doran, your, your description of someone sort of going, with, waving their hands around. <laughs> I mean, if you read, I can't remember the numbers of the paragraphs. I think if you read paragraph, is it 49? And, oh, I forget what they are, but it is, it is, it's, it's comic. I mean, one paragraph is just written for Dublin and the next paragraph is written for Arlene Foster. And they are, <laughs> they are mutually incompatible. Yeah. And, and in a sense, the EU has gone, well, fine, if that's, that, gets you through, that gets you through the day. <laughs> you know, and and so they just park the whole issue, and 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 the, and the fundamental contradiction is a very easy one to describe. You you can't have a border and not have a border. I mean, you either have a border, you don't have a border, and and in a sense, they're just refusing to choose. Um, uh, and so I I think all they've done is just stalled and fudged. Uh, my my own reading of the politics, by the way, is that. I think people have got overexcited about this rather contorted wording about regulatory alignment. As said, aha, this means this, this will give birth to a soft Norwegian-style Brexit. I don't think for one minute a Norwegian-style, where we are rule-takers, not rule-makers, where, you know, where we pay, where we sign up to all the freedoms and so on and so forth, is remotely deliverable uh, given the state of the Conservative Party. And by the way... On this, in this instance, with good, with good reason. Why on earth would we leave the European Union only to become supplicants for all the rules which previously were writing? So I don't, I don't, I think people are getting overexcited about this deal giving way to a soft Brexit, when in fact I think it is just a rather clumsy way of trying to kind of, you know, live for another day with it in, in, in and straddle the fault lines which haven't yet been addressed within the cabinet. Yeah. So is, is, I got, well, I got really excited about the, the idea that the DUP <laughs> was our saviour. <laughs> well, the saviour would just really made me laugh that, you know, that essentially they had to quickly go and rewrite this this idea because the DUP rightly pointed out that actually what you were trying to do was align Northern Ireland with Southern Ireland, which is obviously not what they really want to do. And they actually want to keep Northern Ireland with Scotland, Wales and England. So in which case, we're still in the EU, as far as I can see. It seems like it's almost if you if they if they say it's full alignment, then it is almost exactly the same. And it's the DUP that pulled that off. That was kind of the bit that I made, that made me laugh. But it's amazing you can sort of tell people that you've made a deal, that you fixed something, mm. and then even though that when you read it, it's just like you haven't fixed it. it that can still that be the narrative. What, what don't you think that's I politics? That's... I mean, that's what I always find hard about politics. Sometimes is that you you read and if you read it in a kind of logical way, you think this doesn't make sense. But it's in order to get things kind of slightly shifted along the way. It's politics it's, and the media, though. I mean, the media is your, your back. I mean, it, the, the, you just use the word narrative. Yeah. The media does leap from one narrative. So they get bored of the narrative of 
Theresa May, beleaguered, 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 beleaguered. So they just switch overnight to triumphant Theresa May. Yeah, and, but not and, even that. If you just if you just read the BBC, which is obviously yeah, yeah. kind of neutral, you just think, okay, well they've just had to fudge this because that is the nature of politics, and they yes. have to move on now. Yes, and and you, that's all. You know, the only thing that seems to be fixed is how much we pay and the fact that EU citizens are probably all right now. Well, that that bit of the EU citizens' rights has obviously been a bit of a theme on the show. Um, it was presented as done and dusted that any EU resident in the UK or UK resident in the EU who moved there before Brexit will have their rights protected. And in fact, it may be longer than that if another specified date is hammered out. Which sounds good, but many UK citizens in the EU have attacked both May and Juncker for selling them out to get a deal. Some fear they'll be landlocked in the country they're in now, unable to move elsewhere in Europe. Our past guest, Sue Wilson, chair of campaign group Remain in Spain, said the Tories are crowing as if they've pulled off a major success that we should be celebrating and accepting with gratitude. British citizens in the EU are not celebrating or grateful, but more fearful than ever of being thrown under the Brexit bus. So is this, again, another thing that's more complicated than it seems? It, it's, it's, it's one of these things to be, it's to be seen. They're saying that the process for EU citizens applying to stay will be transparent, smooth and streamlined. You've had the immigration minister this week saying, oh, you'll be able to do it online. It'll be no more expensive than a passport, etc., etc. But that's one thing to say. We know what it's like to um, actually apply for any kind of permit or whatever from the Home Office. I am literally in the process right now with my partner of trying to get his um, uh, his visa sorted out. And you would not believe the expense and the trouble and the bits of paper that is all those. And if you get anything wrong, it could screw the entire application. Is that all going to change when they've suddenly got vast numbers of extra people to, to deal with, all these three million people? I, I find that hard hard to imagine that it will it will be as good as they promised. But we're like, let's see. Has this been sort of quite close to home for you, Nick? Has that been yeah, I'm a yeah. Dutch mum and a Spanish wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's to, to the two most important women in my life by a yeah. long way. And I won't adjudicate between the two on, on, on air. <laughs> That's a very dangerous thing to do between your wife and your, your mum. Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. And, um, you know, my... Uh, my, my, my poor mum she probably doesn't want to be held up as an example but it, it is quite I mean it, you know p- people often talk about these things and forget you're, you're dealing with human beings here who've in the case of EU citizens uh, people like my mum who put very deep roots down this country you know my mum taught um, children with dyslexia with learning difficulties for years here in the, you know, paid her taxes raised four children here married to an Englishman this is her home you know she, she um, a quirk of history she's one of those Dutch people who uh, ended up in a in her youth uh, in a Japanese prisoner war camp because she was born in Indonesia and she, so she actually has spent only a fraction of her time in the Netherlands which is her her home country uh, you know to all intents and purposes she is she's impeccably British and yet she had no say in the referendum itself completely disenfranchised so the the future of her kids her family her husband her grandchildren all of that was sort of in a sense determined over her head and now she you know now she has to sort of you know, jump through hoops. Now, we've heard lots of what sound like reassuring uh, noises that the that it'll be a very quick tick box exercise. When I asked my mum whether she was going to fill in one of these forms, she said, "Oh, I'm, I'm not going to bother." You know, by, by the time I die, I die, these Muppets in Whitehall still won't have worked out what to do. So that's her. That's her. <laughs> that's her rather breezy, um, no nonsense Dutch uh, uh, <laughs> attitude as an eight year old. But um, you know, I, I think until people really see that it does work as seamlessly and as uh, as effortlessly as it's claimed, uh, I think people can legitimately be pretty sceptical. I mean, certainly my experience of half a decade in Whitehall is that Whitehall's claims that they know how to run online um, uh, procedures uh, effortlessly almost always end up being a bit of a cock-up. And we also should should point out that even if it goes absolutely swimmingly, EU citizens in Britain are having, and British citizens mm. in the EU, are having lots of stuff taken off them. So suppose your mother or your wife had to go away for a few years to look after a sick relative... Uh, if it's more than five years, their settled state status is suddenly un- in doubt. That's not the case at the moment. They can come and go. Um, you know, there's be, there'll be and there'll be all sorts of little details of this when it when they start deciding on slightly awkward cases, of which there will be an awful lot. You know, people such as uh, your mother who'd spent a lot of time in a, in a third country outside the EU. How are they going to judge on all all this stuff? Just doesn't happen to them now. So they're going to have all that taken off them, aren't they? Y- yes. Yes, though, though it is, of course, well, just to be fair, it is worth recalling that there are qualifications to kind of the reciprocal rights already. So, you know, we all know that, for instance, that British passport holders who've lived in EU countries for more than 15 years forfeit their right to vote in this country, and they're very angry about it. So, I mean, there are, there are constraints and limits already, but, but clearly it's going to get a whole lot more 
a whole lot more complicated. And I'm afraid this whole area feels like so much else of this whole Brexit process, which is like, so everything's thrown up in the air and now a huge amount of energy is expended on trying to get it as close to what it was before yeah. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the process, to which the question is, well, why are we doing it in the first place? Indeed. <laughs> Answer at the end of the show. <laughs> um, we don't need to talk about the money because we're paying a fortune and we knew we would. Um, but did want to say before we move on, these comments from Gove and, and Davis that to the EU that just sort of made this agreement last Friday... They can hear this stuff. They they do have news and the internet and so forth. <laughs> so it seems like it seems like they're trying to signal to Gavin Davis like trying to signal to the the, the backbenchers, the Brexiters, not to kick up a fuss. But they're doing it kind of really loudly. And if mm. I was the EU and I'd made this deal and then I saw people going out yeah. on TV and just going, Well, like we don't we don't have to stick to yeah. it. It just seems like a bizarre a bizarrely sort of naive way of doing it. Not naive. It also puts us into the ludicrous position as a country which used to be, in many ways, regarded around the world as the sort of epitome of, of, of smart, sometimes quite wily statecraft. But, you know, we, we kind of made our name internationally over generations as a country that kind of formed international institutions, knew how to kind of populate the world with laws, institutions, precedents and treaties which were sort of made here. We now appear to be this sort of sort of random bunch of chancers who say one thing one moment and then say, oh, well, we didn't really mean it the next. Which is, so, so, you know, one of the, it's really important to remember, if you're a mature, grown-up country, a certain degree of reliability and predictability is crucial for people to take you seriously. And, there's yeah. a, you know, there's a reason why we are now taken less seriously um, than at any time, and I can remember certainly in my political lifetime. Um, it's because people think, well, they're just kind of making stuff up. They're just not serious. They're just mm. not... And that that's worrying. That should really worry anyone who's... And here's the great peculiar twist to all of this, is that I think the British government is acting in a profoundly unpatriotic manner. Um, you know, I think, I think one of the great um, virtues of British statecraft was our ability to kind of strike deals, strike them intelligently, sometimes ruthlessly, um, but do so in a way which would then stick and that people around the world would understand why we were doing it. Now, it just, I, I mean, just... Little anecdote. I just had lunch just earlier before coming here with a friend of mine who I'll leave nameless, who's a very senior official in the European Commission, one of the most senior officials in the European Commission. And he said, Do you know what the lesson we've learned in Brussels about this so called deal last week is that there's lots of huffing and puffing in London. And because basically no one seems to be able to make up their own minds in London, we just end up imposing an agreement in the end after all. Um, like parents over kids, isn't it? It's just like kids. Yeah, it, like, so what, wobbly, we, and parents go. Actually, yeah. this is what you're doing, and yeah. you do it now. Yeah, and then everyone goes a bit grumpy. All right, then. <laughs> uh, and that's that's kind of and that's what kind of what's happened. And you know, so the lessons from the EU, which in a weird kind of way, I don't think they actually are looking for, is they thought, given that Britain had picked this fight, that Britain would therefore come up with the solutions to the problems which it throws up. And I think they are really, really struck that at the end of the day, to get anything done, they in effect, a bit like parents over squabbling kids, have to impose a solution. But boy, is the boot now almost entirely on the EU foot. Mm. Uh, so that's why it's so peculiar to see the Daily Mail of all papers mm. rejoice at actually what is in many ways a negotiating humiliation. What times we live in. <laughs> um, now a word from our sponsor. The spectral voice of Ian Dunt there, the ghost of Romaniacs past and yet to come. He'll be back in the new year. And Nick, your book, How to Stop Brexit and Make Britain Great Again, uh, has just been voted Parliamentary Book of the Year by MPs. So they won't actually vote to stop Brexit, but they will vote for a book called How to Stop Brexit. Yes. That, so that's something, I think I, right? I think I'm suddenly getting more plaudits in, in Parliament than I ever did in the 12 years when I was actually in there as an MP. Um, I, I'm not, I, I don't in any way want to diminish the uh, achievement that I feel my book has chalked up. But I, I wonder really quite how many, quite how many MPs and peers... Um, Voted in this selection of the book, but uh, no, look, I'm, I'm really chuffed. I, my, the private conversations I'm having with um, uh, Labour and Conservative MPs is really quite intriguing. I, I, I think there is a growing awareness, which is really promising, that the vote that they will have to cast at some point, you know, next autumn, um, you know, maybe at sort of, you know. 2am in the morning after a long acrimonious debate will be one of those votes, a bit like Iraq a bit, one of these, you know, these votes only come along once in a while, it'll be a moment where people will realise that they've got to kind of live with their decision forever it'll have to rest with their consciences, not just what their constituents or their party associations or their whips want 
And that's important. It's important now that there's an awareness that this is an enormous, enormous decision they're making. And if they sign away the UK on what I predict will be a bunch of not only false assumptions about the future from the government, but very half-baked ones, because the government won't be in a position to actually describe in any meaningful detail what the future holds. Um, if they do that, you know, I think quite a lot of them are aware that it, it might sit quite uneasily on their on their consciences. Um, so I think we, over the next few months, need to really press MPs to not sign away the future of this country if they're not either privy to what that future holds, because it'd be absurd to vote on something without being told what the future holds, uh, and B, not to do so if they've got any serious misgivings about it. So I'm, I don't want to overstate it, uh, but I think it is possible... Um, I'm not going to pretend it's probable, but I think it's perfectly possible that, that government, that Parliament does come to our rescue next uh, next year. Well, it is uh, an optimistic book, and you know we've been looking back over the kind of the events of the year, and, and I've definitely become more optimistic. What do you, for you, what do you think was the kind of the low point in terms of how you saw Brexit panning out, and in terms of maybe how you saw the values you cherish, the you know the direction they were going. I, I, I don't want to personalise this because I, I, I admire her but there was a moment I remember in the little interregnum parliament of which I was still a member before I was unceremoniously kicked out of uh, out of parliament by the uh, grateful voters of Sheffield Hallam uh, so this this uh, this, this um, parliamentary session 2015 to 2017 I remember there was a yet another debate about all of the oh that's right it was about the triggering of article 50 right big crucial moment and I remember Margaret Beckett who in a sense had nothing to lose she wasn't She's not a politician on the make. She's not trying to build a career. She was you know, coming towards the end of her political career. She's had a distinguished cabinet career behind her. Said, and I, I hope I'm not unduly misquoting her, but it was something along the lines of, I remember she used the word catastrophe. She said, I believe this to be will be a catastrophe for my constituents, but I still feel I should vote for the triggering of Article 15. I thought, and that was a very depressing moment, because I thought if you, if you get to the point in a representative democracy where people say, as a representative of my constituents, I think this is not just bad, or might be bad, a catastrophe, and yet I feel I should go ahead with it. I thought, wow, wow something has been completely hollowed out um, in, in the basic checks and balances by, by which a mature democracy should op- operate. How, so that was a bit of a low point for me. Why and why do you when think I went it's in, changed, though? That's what I want. Since like, then? Yes. I mean, you know... Uh, because... Uh, I diligently that, lobbied my MP, who, you know, I live on in a leave... No, yeah, live in a leave constituency, and he, you know... Did what he did. So I think the triggering of Article 50, uh, I think it was still, uh, that took place in the, I mean, it shouldn't have been perceived as such, but it was by, I think, a lot of MPs just seen as a sort of unavoidable postscript and footnote to the referendum vote itself. So, you know, if you... Like a rubber stamp. Yeah. Uh, Now, I went into the other lobby, as did Ken Clark, but there was very few of us, and there were very few, you know, very few Labour and Conservative MPs. I think what it has happened with the passage of time because of the incompetence with which the government's handled things, because of the fact that every single red line has been shown to be meaningless, um, because it's so obvious that the EU will basically dictate terms to us rather than vice versa, because it's just the evidence is piling up, this is bad for the United Kingdom. And crucially, as I emphasise in my book, that not a single, and I'm not just saying not some, not a single one of the key promises that were made to millions of voters about the kind of cornucopia of benefits that Brexit would bring are coming about. I think all of that has made people realise that, you know, there's a limit to how much you just have to sort of say, because we took this very, very narrowly won decision on, on, on a Thursday afternoon last summer, that somehow we, from that from that point on, we just ignore all evidence to the contrary. And, and, you know, as time goes on, I think people become more and more emboldened to say, well, hang on a minute, if the facts change that much compared to the decision we took in the summer, surely we do, you know, as Keynes famously said, you know, if the facts change, I change my mind, so what do you do? You know, you, 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 you adapt with it. So I think we're starting, how can I put it, the basic democratic reflexes of Parliament are starting to, the, the, the kind of limbs and arteries of our representative democracy are starting to function again when they, they realise that it's entirely within their rights to respond to new facts. And, and that, the more we can encourage that, the better. That wasn't the case at the time of the, art, the triggering of Article 50. And ironically, there's that phrase that you use in the book, we've been throwing it in David Davis's face as often as possible. Mm. If a democracy can't change its mind, it ceases to be a democracy. And it seems to me that we all sort of forgot that when, mm. the, when the stop moaning and get over it thing all happened, that we actually thought, hang on a second, this is just one vote. 
Hmm. You know, uh, we have elections. People who vote Labour and the Conservatives win don't have to become Conservatives. They don't have to uh, stop campaigning against cuts in spending or whatever. They, they, they're still entitled to their opinions. They're still, still entitled to campaign for the next election. We seem to forget that for a few minutes, uh, didn't we? But now, hopefully, it's coming back. Yeah, though, I, I don't know about you. I, I finally feel that one of the biggest ingredients that's missing at an almost subliminal, so unspoken level in... in um in the country at large, is precisely that, is the confidence that in a democracy, in a free society, you are entitled to change your mind. Uh, I think one of the reasons why you have this odd discrepancy at the moment between an increasing number of voters, including an increasing number of Leave voters, saying they've got misgivings about uh, Brexit, and yet not really changing their verdict on whether we should or shouldn't have voted for Brexit in the first place, is because they think it's too late. So one of the big things we need to do over the next few months is constantly remind people that until certainly that 11pm moment on the 29th of March 2019, we are always free to change our mind. It's the biggest, it's why I'm, I'm you know, I, I constantly say to the Europeans I meet, please, please, please keep telling us that in a free world, you're allowed to change your mind if you want to. There's not, it's not a sin. Well, there was a lot of kind of mind changing in the, the last general election here. And I think something that yeah. certainly surprised me and a, and a lot of observers was that despite um, Labour's sort of ambiguous position on Brexit, that many Remainers uh, kind of went for Labour as, as, mm. as their choice for that reason. Um, and the Lib Dems who were kind of staunchly pro-EU sort of underperformed. And then every week it seemed that there would be some kind of like journalist um, who late at night decided they were going to launch a Macron-style third party, and they give it an exciting name, and they go, we can have these people, these people, this people, mm. and then they'd never be heard of again. Mm. Um, as a member of mm. Britain's existing pro-European third party, um, is, is this a bit grating, people constantly wanting to start like these new sort of centrist parties that will save the day? No, I don't find it grating. I, I find it an inevitable uh, consequence of that kind of pent-up energy that at the moment is not kind of swirling around a bit in British society, trying to find a new outlet. Um, uh, I, I actually, I mean, obviously I don't agree with his politics at all, and I think he's, I think he's erecting the most ludicrous expectations of what he, uh, what he claims he'll do if he gets into office. This is Jeremy Corbyn, and, and, and I found all the kind of slightly sort of, you know, I found that unheroic ambivalence about Europe, found that grating. But it doesn't surprise me that people should, should have, and particularly youngsters should have, in very large numbers, should have flocked to his standard, because... Firstly, his tone was great. I mean, I think his politics stinks. I think his policies are rubbish, but I think his tone is great. I think tone is very important. What out of three ain't bad. Oh, no, but, but tone is immensely important. Most people don't actually follow the ins and outs of politics. They kind of get a vague impression of the kind they of body. They vote on line. emotion, don't yeah. they? And, 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 he ha- and he has this nice, quiet tone, which I think ap- ap- appeals to people. And the country isn't, the country is really knackered after nine long years of saving money and so on, and constantly being told about austerity and all the rest of it. And he comes along and he basically says, look, there, there, there have a nice long hot bath and a cup of tea and you don't need to make any difficult choices and there's lots of free stuff all paid for but I totally understand I might not agree with you know the outcome of it but I totally understand why people might gravitate towards that and I also I mean I, I don't want to sound too um, just sort of indulging too much wisdom with hindsight but I think as I said earlier talking at that stage this is the Lib Dems that is about another vote having just had one about in a set of circumstances which the electorate really couldn't possibly foresee was always quite a long shot. If you say to voters, vote for us for another vote, even though you've just had another vote, uh, for another set of circumstances which haven't arisen yet, the voters are going to go, uh, you know. So I think, I think the referendum thing is coming back into its own now. Timing, if tone is everything in politics, timing is everything. The timing wasn't quite right for that message from the point of view of the Lib Dems either. Because you mentioned austerity there, which is obviously Corbyn as an anti-austerity candidate. And it, it crops up in your book as one of the things that sort of fed a lot of the kind of resentment and frustration that, that, that led to the sort of Leave vote. Again, we're doing a lot of hindsight here. But you know, you, in the coalition government where austerity sort of started, how much of a sense did you have of where this might lead of what austerity may end up chipping away at yeah. i know you were not the most enthusiastic proponent of it within that government but well i mean this is probably take us down a different alley i mean it's interesting you say it's when it started it didn't start of course I mean, here's the great the thing that everyone reinvents history in politics for, for their own purposes the left in, in labor party have completely reinvented history uh, gordon brown and alice Darling had a manifesto commitment in 2010 to reduce the structural deficit more rapidly than we ended up doing between 2010 and 2015. And I know the left hates to hear this, Labour Party hates to hear this. Actually, what the coalition government did, actually, 
I'm going to blow my own trumpet, principally because of me. I stopped a whole bunch of extra cuts, which are now being imposed by, 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 by the Tories, particularly this absolutely swinging extra volley of £12 billion extra of uh, welfare cuts meant that, yes, we saved money, but not nearly as radically as most other European governments had to in the wake of 2008. We, actually, what happened was the increase of public spending slowed. We didn't, there was no net decrease, if you mean, so you just increased but more slowly. But crucially, we did it at a pace which was slower than originally envisaged by Labour. So, look, I, I think quite a lot, and that's, by the way, not to defend individual decisions. There were some individual decisions which I'm not going to pretend I find easy to defend. But the overall contraction was actually a lot more subtle than people described. The language, particularly from George Osborne, was pretty spine-chilling. Uh, look, so I don't entirely know what Labour means when they say stop austerity. I mean, you're sort of stopping saving, you know, stopping making the... Stopping future generations from sort of paying out for debts that we've racked up. Is, I find it all a bit opaque. But here's one very clear thing, and I've said this in the very snatched conversation I've had recently with Jeremy Corbyn when our paths crossed in a TV studio. One thing is completely clear is you cannot stop, slow, soften, moderate austerity if you proceed with Brexit. You just can't. Mm. It is just a law of nature. You cannot blow a massive additional black hole in your public finances by proceeding with Brexit and claim that that is a progressive thing to do. It is. So in other words, I think one of the things that's really important the Labour people need to understand, and Chuka Amuna, I think, has been great. He's, he's really got this, and he keeps saying it over and over again in his public statements. It is, it is antithetical to Labour's progressive social mission to carry on and to persist and to support Brexit. And if they, if they really get that, then I hope it's only Kate Hoey and Frank Field in the end who will vote for the Conservative <laughs> version of Brexit. He is my MP. He oh, was the one uh, that I love. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> I have to say. Um, I just wanted to ask you a question, because obviously we've been talking about uh, the fact that this was brought about by a referendum. We could say it was one of the most destructive things that kind of has happened in British uh, peacetime, really. Um, so... Now people blame Cameron for calling it, and that's completely understandable, and being kind of complacent about the outcome. But you called for an in-out referendum, didn't you, in 2008, to draw the poison, is what you said. Do you think that was a bit optimistic? So that was all around the um, ratification of the Lisbon Treaty. Mm. So the the, the position that the Lib Dems took, and I think still take, is that if uh, we were to enter as a country into a new treaty arrangement where we pool more decision-making sovereignty with the European Union, that that is a decision which can't just be taken by the government and parliament. It should be taken by the people. So that was the basis on which we argued for a referendum at the time. And I think that still stands. Why I regard that, as, as I explained to Cameron, because um, he pointed that out to me in sort of conversations when he fleetingly tried to persuade me we should hold this ridiculous referendum as part of the coalition, I said there's a world of difference between having a referendum when you've got a question to answer, because you basically entered into a new treaty, and having a referendum apropos of nothing, other than the fact that he impatiently wanted to get it over and done with early in his new term and to settle an internal spat within the Conservative Party. People aren't stupid. If they're asked to go to the, you know, to the polling station in a referendum and they know that it's for no objective reason other than just to kind of settle some random dispute in Westminster in, in one party which they don't really understand of course people then vent now I can't put my hand on my heart and say to you do I think the result would have been different if you were basically voting on the occasion of the ratification of a treaty but I suspect it would be different because then you'd have at least quite a lot of the debate would be focused on that that latest step yeah, of integration small. and then the question well the question would be have we gone too far and then of course you get a bunch of people say we want to have the whole thing so that's that's the difference that's the difference but look i'm not going to hide from you that having um but been through two uh, referenda when i was deputy prime minister one which went completely pear-shaped on uh, electoral reform <laughs> and the other and the other which was a close shave in scotland and now having seen this one i'm i'm fast going off the virtue <laughs> of swiss style direct have, democracy but that's have what you, you want though you were you're kind of we well, want another referendum though, yeah Yes the, and no. <laughs> no, no. You, you, I th I th I, I, my own view is that now we're, we're on this issue. We're now. I just don't think you. I don't think the legitimacy of a different decision would stick unless yeah. people were acting. Otherwise, you'd have this running sore forever, and it would be we were cheated, we was robbed. Uh, you, you know, if you want to draw a line under this one way or yeah. another, I think it has to be done in in the end through another referendum. Have you spoken to David Cameron much since the referendum? No, no, no. I, I, I texted each other about something that. Uh, it was like a month or two ago and saw him once about six months ago or so no but I mean the, 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 though we worked perfectly well together I mean, this, this kind of image of this sort of 
you know, it's rose, rose garden, garden bromance. <laughs> I mean, it's just so far, far from the truth. It was a pretty, I mean, it was a professional, but it was a pretty hard-headed sort of transactional sure. thing, as you'd expect. I mean, I, I kept saying to people, I didn't go into politics, certainly didn't go into government, to look for mates. You know, thankfully, most of my dear friends and friends got names. I think they barely even know what party I adhere to. I mean, you know, they're friends from my childhood. So, you know, I've never... But, I, you know, there was the, the, the tragedy for him, I think, obviously history will re- remember him most for this decision and its uh, aftermath. The, the tragedy for him is he... he um, he actually travels quite lightly ideologically. In that sense, he's, he yeah. draws on quite a patrician, conservative tradition, which is not like the sort of ideological zeal of the Thatcherites. It's kind of basically chaps like him are better at managing things. So it's, just, <laughs> so it's just better if they're in charge, generally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For the reasons for, for which are slight, are slightly secondary, and they're, they're, that slightly evolves over time. But by the way, and I don't want to poo-poo that, it's a, successful, it's a successful conservative tradition which has served the Conservative Party very well, precisely because in that long Conservative Party tradition, they avoided the extremes. They avoided getting too zealous about things. They avoided becoming too ideological about things. And so he treated this in that way as a sort of pragmatic way of kind of slipping the noose and kind of moving forward. And and the tragedy is I think he never quite gave himself enough credit publicly for the fact that he was quite a good coalition prime minister because he was quite good for those reasons at sort of accommodating different points of view. And I wonder if something that sort of goes back to the deal we were talking about, one of the points you make in the book um, is something I think that we've talked about a lot here, which is that the the more hard line... The, the kind of bleeding breaksters were the kind of easier it was to to oppose them that the way that they made the man the way that they kind of appropriated the mandate mm. and all mention you know pre-referendum mentions of like oh maybe Norway maybe this just went out the window yeah. and it was very easy to oppose do you worry that with this kind of soft fudgy deal here that that actually opposition will kind of the fire of the opposition will sort of drain out a bit because it doesn't look so bad so so i I totally agree that this as we as we discussed earlier this i think misguided view that somehow that deal is the harbinger of an eea efter style deal i do think that has the danger of making people sort of soft sort of sugar coating uh, what remains a bitter pill and i'm very concerned that the uh, emphasis of both the government and the business community, understandably for their purposes on the transition period, will become the abiding focus in the early weeks and months of 2018. I think it's unavoidable that it will be. And again, what that will mean is that it'll, it'll, it'll divert attention from the much, much more important question, which is what happens at the end of the transition period. And in effect, we're now, in, we're now on a seesaw, in my view. The softer and the longer the transition, the harder and more uncompromising the end. And so the trick in politics, which is a really difficult trick, is to get people to focus on the end, not, mm. not, not, not how you nice get there. It's a now, yeah. Um, we've just got uh, a couple of reader questions. Yeah. Listener well, questions. Listen, listen, Sorry, we, listeners, we they're called now. Well. <laughs> <laughs> OK, Nick Tolhurst asks, does Nick really envisage a possibility that in five to ten years the UK could again be a normal member of the EU, going to EU meetings, participating in budget debates and so on? I'm a Remainer, he says, but I just can't see it. Oh, I can. Of course I can. Look, there is no other mature democracy. In fact, there's no democracy in the modern era uh, that has taken such an abrupt and radical decision about its own future against the overwhelming stated wishes in the ballot box of those who have to inhabit that future, the young. You know, 70% of 18 to 24-year-olds voted for a different future. There's, a, there's just like a limit to how much you can frog march a whole generation in a, in a direction they don't want. So I, I think the more... Uh, by the way, really important this, and that's where Corbyn is a tremendously important figure in British politics at the moment. It's crucial that young voters retain their, their zeal and activism about that. It's very, very dangerous if, if young voters sort of subside into a sort of traditional sense of passivity. But if that and other things happens, yeah, of course. Not, we're never going to be at the core. We're never going to be a core leading member of the EU. But nor should we be casting ourselves out into outer space. Our natural place in Europe is a member of the European Union, but in a sort of outer sort of core, outer tier of membership. That's where I think we... That reflects our ambivalence. People like me might want us to be core members, but we're not. Always in the kitchen at parties, basically. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but a little bit Slightly, at the end yeah. of the table. You know. <laughs> Throwing bread rolls. And um, there's another question, actually, Vic, from Vicky Riches. What a great name. Um, she is begging you to come back and lead the official Remain came, but, campaign, but there's no official Remain campaign, and there is no figurehead. So, I mean, mm. would it be you? Would it be Stormzy? I think that might be the answer. <laughs> well, look... Uh, there are, a number of, there, are, there are a number of groups, as you know, aren't there? There's, there's, there's Open Britain, there's Best for Britain, there's European Movement, there's all these groups. 
I, I mean, I have said to, to all of those groups, and, and to be fair, I think they're trying to do this, it, it's really important, urgently, they become a sum of their parts. Uh, because this cacophony of different groups saying slightly different things is really bad. If there's one thing I learned the hard way through politics is that if everyone slightly indulges in their own kind of views, you, you just don't shift opinion. People have to hear a pretty clear message in a sort of amplified way over a long period of time. That's not happening at the moment. As for who should lead it, I mean, those groups themselves are very, very kind of wary of being associated with politicians, or dare I say, ex-politicians, which is fine. I mean, I, mm. I, I, instead, I really don't care as long as we, as long as we mobilise better to, to, to get out of this cul-de-sac. And if it's not going to be a politician or an ex-politician... I mean, it'd be lovely if, I don't know, a, a national treasure, David Attenborough or Judy Dench or Stephen Hawking or J.K. Rowling, maybe they could take up the cudgels. In a sense, I don't really, I personally don't mind, as long as, as, long as the organisations quickly get their act together and quickly decide who is their messenger because you can't deliver a message without a messenger. And, and uh, you know, if it's not going to be people who are involved in politics, which is, seems to be the the kind of approach uh, of, of these campaign groups, then then quite quickly they need to decide who it should be instead. I am correct then, Stormzy. <laughs> you are correct. Did you say yeah, Stormzy or Stormzy? No, 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 yeah, definitely Stormzy. 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 Is that his nickname now? Apparently, yes. Really? Yeah, We're trying to make it happen. It's yeah. not, he hasn't gone for it though. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of our regular shows for 2017. Next week we've got a special edition with all of our regular presenters talking about their highlights, lowlights and Romaniac heroes of the year. So don't miss that. Thanks to Nick Clegg for coming in. Thank you. Nick, we were, thinking, we were talking about families at Christmas and how, how to talk about Brexit or indeed not mm. to leave us in the family. Your family seems so sort of, from, from reading the book and from what I know about you, seems so outrageously European <laughs> and Eurofile. Outrageously. Do you, do you have it? I mean, like in a good way, do you have, do you have any, any, any levers in the family listen, that might create some situations? For me, it's jumping from fire, whatever, the frying pan into fire. Because I go to Spain, obviously, with Miriam and the kids to, to the in-laws, where they spend all their time arguing about Catalonia. <laughs> <laughs> so, so by the end of the Christmas holiday, I'm logging for another argument about Brexit. <laughs> Well, thanks again. Thanks so much for coming in. I'm Randa Sawyer. Mm. Well, I, what are your hopes I, for Christmas? My hopes? Well, I mean, I have to say, I live in my family, just intensely liberal. Nobody wants Brexit at all. So we'll just argue about the usual thing, which is football. <laughs> Good old fashioned football. Yeah. And Peter Collins. Well, my you. family is a minefield of pro and anti Brexiter people, and generally the pro Brexit people, I think, a little more assertive on their opinions. So I'm just going to be sitting there eating a little piece of turkey and keeping quiet, I think. <laughs> yeah, my plan is not to bring it up unless people ask what I've been doing, and then I'll say the name of the podcast and hope perhaps that speaks for itself. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly, we want to thank all our listeners who have made Romaniacs such a success and such a pleasure to make. Even though we spent the year talking about the collapse of Britain as a function society every week it has been fun and next year will be better we promise we'll be back with brand new shows in the first week of january in the meantime we have a christmas treat for you brexmas carols from the cast members of brexodus the musical which ran in london until october this year we'll have more seasonally appropriate songs on next week's romaniacs brexmas special there's nothing you can't improve by putting brex at the beginning <laughs> and punch and backers you've got video versions coming soon too so here's James Sanderson as Boris Johnson, Ailey Scott as Theresa May, and James Taylor Thomas as Michael Gove, with assorted Romaniacs played by the cast. Lyrics are by David Sheriff, who co-wrote the musical, and on piano is Frederick Appleby. You can find out more at brexitusthemusical.com. Best Christmas wishes from all of us at Romaniacs, and God help us, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Deck the halls with boughs of holly, fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. Brexit is the height of folly, fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. Staying in Europe's a no-brainer, fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. Proud to say I'm a Remainer, fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Peter Collins. The producers were Andrew Harrison and me, Matt Hall. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.